Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. The concept of journalism as a first draft of history is well established and we are certainly living in historic times. Luke Harding, a veteran correspondent with The Guardian in Moscow and Kyiv, has spent much of the past year in Ukraine on the front lines covering the war as it unfolds. His book, Invasion, the inside story of Russia's bloody war and Ukraine's fight for survival, is out this week. It records his personal frontline reporting on this harrowing invasion, the biggest news event of the year, and an inflection point in international politics. Luke, welcome. Hello, great to be with you. Luke, so much has happened in 2022. It feels as if history has sort of sped up and concertinaed into one year. But here we are, the, the war has been raging for about nine months. And your account of perhaps this first chapter of, of that cataclysm is now out. The first thing I wanted to say is it's a brilliant account and anybody who's interested in Ukraine needs to read this book. I want to go back to the beginning though. What were your own sort of expectations in that moment in the run-up to the war when there was the whole question of whether Putin would or would not launch this tragic invasion? Yes, I mean, I've been writing about Russia and, and Ukraine for, for 15 years. I, f I first went to Kiev in 2007 and I was thrown out of, 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 of Moscow in 2011. And, and as a sort of correspondent, I guess my, my, my function as Russia bureau chief was to describe the, the slow and, and grim slide of Russia from what you might call, well, certainly in the 1990s, it was a sort of chaotic semi-democracy under Boris Yeltsin. But by the time I reached Moscow, it had become this darkening authoritarian state. And I always, my thesis if you if you can call it that was was that this regime you know i would watch it beat up opposition protesters who who assemble in pushkin square use all sorts of repressive measures turn up the dial of state propaganda turn parliament really into 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 just a sort of sham of what a real sort of a, a real sort of functioning political system was my idea was basically this was not just a place of domestic repression but that putin's regime was inherently internationally dangerous and adventurous. And, and there were certain proofs of that. There was the war in Georgia, which I covered in 2008, a sort of brief five-day brutal lesson in, in regional geopolitics where, where the Russian army swept into Georgia and almost made it to Tbilisi, the Georgian capital. Then yeah. I went to Crimea in, in, in 2010 because there was talk already that it might be, be the next target for, for Russian ambitions. And in 2014, I was in Donetsk and, and Luhansk when, when Putin annexed Crimea and, and kick-started essentially what was sort of militarized a pro-Russian counter-rebellion in the East, which actually were it not for Russia would never have, never have taken hold. And to answer your question, when, when Putin started sending tanks and armored vehicles and, and fuel supply columns, building up troops on, on Ukraine's borders in, in the autumn of 2021, I didn't just sort of think this was ominous. I, I thought that actually this was proleptic, that, that actually something was going to happen, that, that Putin was planning some kind of large-scale military action. So at a time of some diplomatic skepticism, where, when, for example, the French and the Germans really didn't believe anything was going to happen, that the Brits and the Americans, by contrast, were sharing intelligence, which suggested that actually this was for real. I went to the front line in Donetsk with the Ukrainian forces just outside Donetsk airport, made a film. And then in Kiev, everybody was, was saying Mariupol, 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 because they acknowledged that were the Russians to attack or do a full-scale attack, 
this city on the Sea of Azov would be very hard to defend. It was right up against the front line. So I went to Mariupol in late January. And of course, when the first bombs started falling on February 24th, 2022, I was in Kiev. One of the other sort of unexpected moments right at that early stage was, of course, the response of the Ukrainian government, and particularly Volodymyr Zelensky, a man whose background was not particularly promising in sort of light entertainment, literally played a comic president before being elected a real one. How quickly did it become clear to you that this man was not a sort of lightweight who was going to turn tail, but would arguably be the greatest wartime leader since Winston Churchill? Yeah, I mean, that, that that's also a good question, because this conversation about Russian intentionality, what was going on in Putin's head, I mean, that, that was that was the, I mean, that, that, that was what we were all thinking about. I mean, not, not just correspondents on the ground, but also Western governments who are trying to figure out what aid, if any, to give to, to the Zelensky government. And at that point, early 2022, Zelensky's personal ratings had fallen. I mean, he'd swept in on a landslide in the spring of 2019, defeated Petro Poroshenko, the incumbent president, and he'd come in on a peace ticket. He'd promised peace with Russia, that he would sit down with Vladimir Putin and sort all this all out. And it, it became pretty quickly clear that this was impossible, that Moscow didn't want to negotiate it. It just wanted to, to defeat Ukraine and humiliate it. And, you know, I was at a press conference that Zelensky gave with Boris Johnson in the beginning of February. And at that point, the, the Americans were so alarmed, they'd withdrawn their ambassador to, to Lviv, about 560 kilometers to the, to, to the west. And I said, well, look, you know, President Zelensky, do, do, you, do you think that move was justified? And he said to me, we do not have a Titanic situation here. Uh, and you know, you sort of wondered, you know, who is the Titanic? Is 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 Ukraine right. the Titanic hurtling towards the kind of massive Russian iceberg, or actually, as it turned out, is Russia the the Titanic sort of going hubristically forward and colliding with a, with an object which was more solid than perhaps the Kremlin had imagined? But anyway, right up until about a day or two before, the Ukrainian government either did not want to believe it or did not want to panic the population, and and on the eve of Russia's full-scale attack. I mean, I was wandering around the center of Kiev. I got a call from a Ukrainian intelligence contact, having having all along believed that actually there would be there would be big war. And he just said to me, "the the invasion will start at four a.m." And sure enough, it did. I mean, it was about half an hour, forty minutes late when the first bombs dropped, and there was this kind of overweening, multi-pronged attack by Russian forces from the north, the east, from the south. Russians bombing um, Ukrainian aerodromes and 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 so on. And the moment when I realised just what what a horror this all was was about an hour and a half later, sitting in the the basement of my hotel, taking shelter, and a family wandered in just off the street. A woman with two kids, and they had coloring books, and they just sort of sat in the shelter doing their coloring books at six in the morning. And you just you you just knew that that people were already dying. That actually civilians were going to be killed, that the kids were going to be killed or were left without fathers or, or, or mothers or have that, their legs blown off. It was quite, it was quite a moment. And, and I, I, you know, I, I sort of thought, one thing I thought was, this is the biggest story of my professional career. This is the largest war on the European continent since 1945. This is, as you said in your introduction, it's an inflection point because essentially for, for, for Putin, this is a, 
civilizational war. This is a struggle for a new world order. He he wants big powers, great powers like Russia to to be able, if if they wish, to overall smaller powers. And he wants to set up a new sphere of influence all across the European continent, like in Soviet times. And most of all, he wants to smash Ukraine so it no longer exists. So I decided then I would stay in Ukraine and, and cover this conflict for as long as it took. And that point you've made there at the end is, it seems completely clear now, the way we've seen the Russian attack unfold, it is a war of destruction, the massacres, the war crimes, the, the mass rapes, the flattening of cities. And then you can, of course, read the missives on the Kremlin website, which effectively questions the independent existence of Ukraine. That being the case, in a way, the incredibly maximalist aims of Putin, it seems to me that almost from day one, that that has created the the seeds of Putin's future failure in this conflict. You know, if he had just sought to sort of cement his control on the Donbass and, and Crimea, he probably would have got away with it. Given that, what do you see now? Now we are in this sort of nine months. Putin still seems to think that he can take the whole of Ukraine. But the truth on the ground, it shows that he's got no chance of doing that. Does that mean that he's going to turn to something desperate like the dirty bomb, the, the nuclear exchange? Well, where are we now at this moment in, in you know, sort of in November 2022? Well, I mean, you're, you're right. And, and actually, you know, my book, I have a whole chapter on this essay that, that Putin wrote, well, essay in inverted commas, when, when he, he'd, he'd flown with cranes, he'd been a scuba diver. He was a bit like Mr. Ben, the 1970s BBC children's TV character. He, he, he'd done these different sort of play acting roles. And then in the summer of last year, of 2021, he became an amateur historian and, and mm. seems to have authored this essay where he, he claims that, that Ukraine was never a state. It was a fake creation by, by, by Lenin. And the Ukrainians and Russians are a single people. And I mean, it's not true. And it ignores recent history, it ignores long periods of Ukrainian self-government, the whole Cossack era of the, the 16th and 17th century. And of course, the fact that, that Kiev and Rus, the original early medieval civilization, centered around Kiev as a city-state, predated Moscow. I mean, Moscow was nothing at that point. It was forest and bog. But nonetheless, once he has this idea, that then explains his war plan to, to destroy this not-state which has been taken over as he sees it by the West and, and to incorporate it into, into a kind of great Russia. Now, that, that, that was the plan. And of course, it didn't work. It broke against Ukrainian resistance. I and mean, the Ukrainians met these advancing Russian columns with, with, with fire and with, with, with fury and not with flowers, as, as he'd anticipated. And what we're sort of seeing play out is the failure of of a fantasy by a dictator who has really, I would say, lost touch with reality, and and for someone who who prides himself on being a brilliant spy, has actually been fed nonsense by his own spy agencies who who know that if they they give him real information that he doesn't like it, and you know you know Russia Russia's war aims. I think I think you're right. I think they are still maximalist. Ultimately, you know Putin wants to subjugate the whole of Ukraine. I think he would be uh, at some point he would try and have another go at Kiev. The original plan was to topple the regime, to kill or arrest Zelensky and, and install a pro-Russian puppet administration. I mean, I think they'd cast that already. They, they had people who were, you know, who, who they knew who was going to fulfill what role. It just the, the plan founded on 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 the battlefield. And what we've seen in recent months, 
since since midsummer is an incredible Ukrainian fight back. I mean, aided, of course, by Western weapons, by HIMARS from America, you know, by by extremely devastating and accurate long range artillery, but also by the fact that Ukrainians basically reject this thesis. They they do not believe that they are rural Russians as Putin sees it, and they've been fighting. They've been organizing horizontally. For them, it's existential. They know if they lose, then then everything is lost. And also that the you know what we've seen, what what Ukrainians have seen, what reporters have seen since the spring has been a horror show. And, and that is what Russian occupation means. That's what it means. It means terror. It means murder. It means arbitrary rule. You mentioned there, and 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 the book, you know, having having had a chance to to read uh, the the book, has some passages that are frankly very difficult to read, but they're they're important passages about the devastating horror of of how Russia wages war. And of course, people who've you know some some knowledge of of previous wars, you know, this is not the first time the Russians have have carried out war crimes on a on a sort of epic scale. One of the things that strikes me about this is that it has closed off the pathways to some other kind of settlement you know in the early days of the war there was still a fairly realistic it would seem possibility that actually in spite of the battle raging that some kind of negotiated ceasefire at least would would be reached but once the war crimes particularly butcher some of the earliest ones to be uncovered came out understandably both ukrainian government but also the sort of public opinion seem to make that then very unlikely so that being the case where we are now is is this a fight to the end it is it, it is a fight to the end and and actually i'm not really sure that that at any moment after after the full scale invasion in february that that a, a peace deal was possible i mean the, the 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 proposition i mean what the russians i guess would like is that Ukraine effectively agrees to cede the territory it's already lost in in Kherson and Zaporizhia in Donetsk and, and, and Luhansk to to Russia in exchange for for peace and for a ceasefire. Now that's not going to happen for for several reasons. It, firstly, it's not going to happen because the Ukrainians don't don't want it. I mean, that's just completely unacceptable. Too many people have been killed, and as you say. After the horrors of, of, of Bucha and Mariupol, where where we think more, you know more than twenty thousand civilians perished, the city no longer exists. Why would you why would you strike a deal with Moscow? That, that that's one. But but the other thing is is a kind of rational belief that Putin would immediately violate any peace deal. In in other words, there would be a deal, let's say, and then three months later, six months later, twelve months later, Putin would would reattack, and I think that's right. I think his goal is to, is to smash the whole of Ukraine to take Kiev, and any ceasefire would be would just be exploited cynically and and, and tactically by the Russians to regroup their forces to to shore up the defenses before before going forward. So therefore, we're in a sort of situation where the Ukrainians have to win, and and what's interesting is that I, I think. Nobody, certainly not the Pentagon at the beginning, or, or most of the Europeans thought that Ukraine could win. But but actually, what we saw in the defense of Kiev, what we've seen recently in uh, in Kherson, where Ukrainian army has taken back territory, the the, the, the liberation of of uh, Kharkiv province, which is an area the size of Wales, we, we can see now the outlines of Ukrainian victory. Now we're a long way from that. It's it's going to take I don't know how long it will take, but it's going to be hard to deoccupy all of the territory the Russian has 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 stolen. But I think 
unless there's a change in Moscow, the war, a change of regime, a change of leader in Moscow, I think the war will will continue and the Ukrainians will keep pushing forward. So we've got that picture of of the, the need for U- Ukraine to go all the way. Does going all the way include Crimea? Crimea, Crimea, Crimea. Crimea is the place that Ukrainians used to go on holiday. And it's been turned by Russia into this ghastly, uh, super militarized garrison. And I think if we'd had this conversation a year ago, I'd have said, no, forget about Crimea. They're never going to get it back. But but actually, Crimea has proved to, to be rather vulnerable. There have been these Ukrainian strikes on the bridge across the Kerch Strait. We don't know how they did it, but but they certainly blew part of it up. The Ukrainians have hit airfields. They've hit military dumps. They've hit uh, logistical hubs. And Vladimir Zelensky says very clearly, you know, we're going to get Crimea back. Now, I, I don't know if it's possible, but I mean, Crimea is certainly in play. And, and w- what Putin did in September when he said he was annexing for Ukrainian regions. Paradoxically, that put Crimea back in play because Crimea is now one of sort of five large chunks of Ukrainian territory that, that the Russians have taken by force. And therefore, you know, why not take it back? I mean, I, I think I think the, 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 the problem from the Ukrainian perspective is that if you look at history, it's quite it's quite hard to sort of cross into Crimea. There are only, you know, one or two bridges yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an isthmus there. A- and traditionally, invaders, whether it's been the Nazis or others, uh, you know, ha- have struggled to, 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 to cross those isthmuses. But, but I sort of think, um, you know, what's interesting about Crimea is, is, is the idea that, that it's just a sort of sleepy holiday place now for Russian tourists has gone forever. I mean, the, there's extraordinary footage, which I write about in my book, of, of these, you know, Russian families little kids with floaties paddling in the in, in, in the waves when a Russian airbase down the road is hit and you see this enormous phantom-like black ragged cloud advancing uh, and the mm. Russians all flee. <laughs> I mean, they, they leg it. They just go, oh, well, we've got to go, we've got to go, we've got to go. And, and thousands of cars have been, have been streaming over the bridge back to, back to Russia. So Crimea is interesting. I mean, let, let's see. I mean, will it be Ukrainian again? It, it, it's, it's possible, but, but perhaps not immediately. I want to uh, talk a bit about the winter. So, we're, you know, we're speaking as, as sort of Europe's winter advances. And we've seen uh, Putin has turned his, his sort of uh, strategy to striking Ukrainians, uh, critical infrastructure, electricity, other, other core utilities. But also at the same time, of course, Europe faces a tough winter. Here in the UK, there's talk of rolling blackouts across Europe. You've got fears of, of, of whether or not there will be sufficient energy to see Europe through a, a hard winter. Is, is there a possibility that actually that this nine-month period, February to November, was the fighting season for, you know, for, for Ukraine and the fighting season politically for Europe? And actually, that Europe doesn't have the backbone to hold on over the winter. And, and, and just as we talk, I'm aware that a fairly influential group of, of Democrats over in the US are starting to question America's support to Ukraine. And, and of course, on the other side of the political divide, you've got the Republicans very, maybe we, shall we say, very ambiguous in, in their support. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there are there are there are t- two ways of looking at this. I mean, on, on the battlefield, there was a lot of amateur um, meteorology 
around about January and February suggesting an invasion couldn't happen because it was too cold and the, the tanks wouldn't work and so on. And, and, and actually, a, a tank is a tank. And, and, and I mean, unless it's comp- e- even in pretty muddy conditions, I mean, tanks, tanks work. In the east of Ukraine, it is very cold. I mean, it was when I was in Mariupol in January, it was absolutely freezing with a, with a co- chill wind whipping off the Azov Sea. But, you know, that doesn't mean you can't fight. There, there will be fighting there. And in the south, it's a bit more temperate. And I think the battle for Kherson will continue uh, for, for 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 sure. That that whole that whole southern theatre will be an active theatre in winter. I mean, maybe we won't see kind of dramatic um, counteroffenses of the kind we saw around Kharkiv from the Ukrainian side, but but certainly there will be active war with with people then gearing up for for, for further advances in the in in the spring. On the political front, Putin's calculation absolutely. Is that the West will tire of this war? That that Russia's appetite for, for 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 pain, you know, both receiving it and inflicting it, is is greater than than the appetite in in Washington or London or Paris or Berlin or Brussels. Yeah, I mean, the Democrats calling for peace or German intellectuals publishing open letters calling for peace. I mean, I mean, I, 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 I as someone who's who's seen these horrors, I, mean, I I just just recoil at this because peace essentially means. That you reward the invader, that you you do some kind of compromise territory in exchange for for, for ceasefire, and and as we've discussed, this won't work because you know Putin lies about everything; is entirely cynical, and a deal won't stick. Sooner or later, he'll 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 sweep round again. So that that that's that's the negative. The the positive is, I think, that Putin has been really taken aback by the 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 the, the cohesion by by the united response. From the European Union, from from democratic countries, um, not just that they've imposed sanctions, but but they have said sort of clearly, strongly, you know, that their their support, both military and moral, is, is for Kiev, and I, I don't see that changing, you know, very, very rapidly. It, it comes from below. I mean, actually, in the UK, it's still full of Ukrainian flags. I mean, you you see politicians of of all stripes wearing Ukrainian UK lapel badges, so. I, I, you know, th- th- this is a sort of great paradox: is that actually by invading y- Ukraine on a large scale, Putin, Putin has rejuvenated the West. He's boosted NATO. I mean, the the Scandinavians, you know, Finland and Sweden are now joining NATO. He has clarified w- what's important about international relations uh, and what what happens when when democracies uh, are smashed up. You, you, you get you get Lord of the Rings style rule, which is 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 what's what's happening in in occupied areas of ukraine where where you know frankly the orcs are in charge so i i it's not going all putin's way but but his calculation certainly is that that cold winter rising energy prices you know people flaking on the far left and the and and you know supporting him from the far right that that ultimately there will, there will be pressure from from the west on zelensky to to make an accommodation with russia but i don't see this as a really realistic scenario i see this as yet another rather absurd Putin fantasy. So I suppose that takes us as, as a final question to Russia itself. As, as you mentioned, and of course, listeners will be well aware, you, you were in Moscow until uh, you, you did your job too well and got booted out. If Russia can't win this war, Putin can't remain ruler of Russia. Is that right? Arthur, if only history was so simple. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Russia is now... I would say it's totalitarian. It's become totalitarian or near totalitarian. I mean, it's certainly more oppressive than the late Soviet Union. Um, yeah. And there are definite 
motifs in 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 the way the state acts which are reminiscent of of the period of high stalinism arbitrary arrest state murder groups of assassins going around poisoning dissidents punitive charges for for anyone who dissents and we've seen literally tens of thousands of young russian men sort of voting with their feet and going to the the border and 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 meanwhile this is a question of you know is putin ill i mean he doesn't look great He's clearly had a lot of work done uh, on on his on his face. He's very puffy. Um, that there are rumors he's had cancer, unproven. We we don't know. But I sort of think waiting for Putin to die and hoping his successor is is more malleable is not a strategy. I think the place that we're at with Russia now is what you might call neo-containment. You, you, you remember sort of the long telegram and George, George Keenan, the, the, the seminal yeah. American diplomat in the post-world era, who basically said that, one, Russians don't think the way we think they should think, uh, and two, the, the, the most sensible approach is, is to contain their, their you know, most expansionist and deleterious tendencies. And and that's where we are now, is is that support Ukraine, support them with, with financial assistance, support them morally, give them give them as much military equipment as, as as we can. And meanwhile try and contain Russia so that this misadventure doesn't happen in some other time in some other place with with, with sanctions and so on. Because there's the, the the time for dialogue, for negotiation, for 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 reason is over, unfortunately. We're we're sort of dealing here with well, this is how Ukrainians see it. And this is how I see it too. After after almost a year of pushing from Ukraine, we're, we're dealing with a sort of rolling evil. <laughs> you just have to contain it the yeah. best as you can. Uh, so that that's where we're at. Uh, and no, no, you know, one final thought. I mean, no, no regime lasts forever. And and I think whether it's sooner or whether it's midterm, you know, Putin will go. I don't see him there in a decade. Uh, and with any luck, Russia itself may change. Well, Luke, fantastic point to conclude this discussion. Tell our listeners what your book's called and where they can find it. My book is called Invasion, uh, the inside story of Russia's bloody war and Ukraine's fight for survival. And it's published um, It's published in, in London by, by Faber, and it's published in the US and New York by vintage and there will be other editions soon include, including the one i'm proud of most of all there'll be a ukrainian edition next year magnificent thank you so much for joining us today in the bunker thank, thank you thank you listeners thank you for joining us today and join us every day for our regular editions of the bunker the bunker daily was written and presented by arthur snell the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.